Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. The question this time is, what does the new guidance from the Department of Justice, the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, have to say about risk assessment. This is another edition where I'm teasing out a little bit more description and detail about the new guidance that just came out about a month ago. But first, I want to mention that on April the 19th, we will be having a live webinar on board of directors training, and we would love it if you would attend. And you can do so very easily by texting the word directors, that's directors with an S at the end, to the number 44222. That's 44222. We make it really easy for you to sign up. And if you have time, we sure love it if you would subscribe to this podcast. And if you have time, give us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. Thanks. So when we're talking about risk assessment and the new guidance, there are really three areas that I think, are worth diving into a little bit more deeply. The first point that the department makes with this new guidance has to do about how organizations define and show their methodology for their risk assessment. So the department is going to make an inquiry in what sort of methodology you use for compliance risk assessment. How have you identified your risks? How do you analyze those risks? And probably most importantly, how are those risks addressed in the long term? The address piece, I think, is particularly important. This is an area where I've seen many organizations spend and invest a lot in a risk assessment process. Uh, Risk assessment processes naturally identify risks, rank those risks often by severity and likelihood, but also a good risk assessment is probably going to have several recommendations. Recommendations for control changes, recommendations for process changes. So what is interesting about what the guidance talks about is this notion of addressing those issues. So addressing recommendations that perhaps have been made in prior risk assessment reports or projects. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is not only Do you need to show your work as far as what your process is, what the methodology is for your risk assessment project or process? But you also need to be able to show with some clarity how you address those results. How do you handle the information and the findings that come out of a risk assessment process? So you need to be very detailed about this. I I think that you basically need to be able to have an answer for every potential recommendation that comes out of a risk assessment. Even if you don't do anything, I think you need to have a reasonable, well-thought-out reason as to why you didn't move forward with a proposed change to a control, for example. So this is really important, and I think it's sometimes overlooked. Again, I've seen companies invest a lot of time and effort into going through the risk assessment process, and then at the end of the day, sort of fade off into the sunset without really addressing the recommendations. Now, they may address some of the recommendations, but there may be some they do not. And those are the ones that would most concern me. 
the ones that you do not move forward with. And there may be very perfectly valid reasons why you're not going to, for example, institute a gifts registry or some sort of electronic gift platform. Because you, you know, you know that the volume of gifts and gift requests in your organization is relatively low and can be handled manually. Well, that's the answer. That just needs to be documented in some fashion. I think it's perfectly valid whether you have an outside third party complete the risk assessment and, and a risk of risk assessment report or whether it's done internally to have a follow-up memo or several memos that detail the succeeding steps that happen after the risk assessment process. The second uh, piece of information that the fraud section has imparted to us in the new evaluation of corporate compliance programs memo has to do with information, information gathering and analysis. What they ask for is to know what metrics, what information, what data are you collecting to help detect misconduct? And how has that information, that data, informed the company's compliance program? So to me, that means how have you changed your program based upon the data you've collected around misconduct? So you need to be prepared to talk about how you're monitoring here. This is all about monitoring, even though monitoring is not mentioned in this paragraph, but that's what it is. What is your monitoring program? What kind of data do you get back? Is your program basically your hotline and whatever system that perhaps HR has in place to gather reports from the field? Maybe there's several different lines of data that get gathered together. This is another area where I think there is room for improvement with many organizations. This, the funnel by which reports about misconduct and questions generally come up the chain of command is very disjointed, and there's several strands in many organizations. So this is a, another clarion call for organizations to try to, as best they can, aggregate that data whether it's coming from HR or security or legal or a separate compliance organization or security, wherever that, or up through operational management, have a way to aggregate questions and reports, have some active monitoring going on, maybe in conjunction with the audit group, where you go out and audit particular functions that you know have been problematic in the past or that you suspect are high risk. So there's there's lots of different threads of information that you might be considering here, and you need to be proactive about it. And you need to have a plan, and you need to do it on a regular basis. That's really what they're looking for, is how you're collecting information. And the second part of the question is really interesting, too, is how has that affected your program? So if you make changes to your program, if you add a control, or you change a policy or procedure, or add a system, and you're doing that in response to reports or issues that have come up in the past, document that. Because that's what they're looking for, is the fact that because you noted that certain types of questions or reports were happening on a regular basis, and you realized that there was a tool or a policy or a training implementation that could address those issues, then document it. Because you need to be able to show that you're responding to the data that you're receiving about misconduct out in the field. The third and final area, which is particularly important and probably new to many organizations, is the notion of manifested risks. The last bullet under the risk assessment subheading in the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document says basically, how has the company's risk assessment process accounted for manifested risks? 
What does this mean? Well, simply, a manifested risk is a risk that has happened, where the likelihood is very, very high because it's a risk that's happened before. To give you a perfect example, say you're an organization that is operating in countries where bribery risk is high, and you've already had some reports of bribery in your past. Well, then bribery, foreign bribery, is a manifested risk for your organization. Whereas if, for example, you're not exporting any technology or anything that is subject to export bans, then while that is a risk, it's, prob- it's not a manifest risk because it hasn't happened and it's unlikely to happen because of the nature of your business. So that's the difference. So really what I th- think in a nutshell what the, the department is saying here is if you have something in your history or in the operation of your organization that tells you that something is pretty likely or that it's happened in the past, which makes it pretty likely perhaps in the future, then your program needs to account for that. You, you cannot be willfully blind to the bribery risk if you're operating in an environment where that has happened before and you know it's happened before. It's actually pretty straightforward, but I like it because one of my pet peeves, if you listen, listen to any of my podcasts, you'll know this. One of my pet peeves is, is organizations spending time and resources on risks that are not manifest risks, that are risks that are have a low likelihood, perhaps a high severity, but have a low likelihood for that organization, or you might be missing this very thing. You might be missing harassment. That's a manifested risk for almost every organization of size. Simple workplace harassment. That is a manifested risk for you. And if you are concentrating your resources on a issue that hasn't happened, that is less likely even if the severity is high, you may be missing out. So I really like the fact that the Department of Justice is bringing us around to this notion that we need to pay attention to the risks we actually face. And those risks are usually the most obvious ones, the ones you already know about. One thing that's not mentioned in either of the three subheadings here is frequency. Other places in this document and in other documents, when talking about reviews in general, the Department of Justice typically uses the term periodic. There needs to be periodic review. And I think it's safe to say that when you're talking about the risk assessment process uh, in a holistic way, that the expectation will be that you, as an organization, undertake this process, have a methodology, for example, that, that contemplates this process on a periodic basis. What would that periodic basis be? Well, the data is you know, varies, but a good mean is every two to three years. That's both for reviewing the components of the program and the controls and systems you have in place, but also looking at the risks that you face. I think at least on that basis, many organizations have an annual process, an ongoing process, and they may only examine a portion of their risk in each period because of resources and and time involved. But it needs to be a planned periodic process. So as far as timing goes, there's no hard and fast rule that you have to examine it every year or every two years or every three years. But I think you need to, at least as part of that methodology we're talking about in the first prong, have an idea of what, how frequently this is happening and be able to defend that, defend that versus what a 
peer organizations are doing or what the expectations are for your industry. So that, I think, in a nutshell, is is a very good overview of what this new guidance has to say about risk assessment. I think it's a good encapsulation of a lot of the big points that you need to know about risk assessment. Maybe saving, as I said here at the end, not specifically talking about how frequent, but I think we know how frequent based on other statements by the department and other regulators. And that's periodic whatever that means. (laughs) So I hope this was uh, helpful for you to kind of tease through this, particularly the manifested risks language, which I think is a new language for many in this space. I want to mention once again, if you're listening to this here in March or in the beginning of April, again, I'm going to have a webinar that I really would love you guys to attend and participate in. On April the 19th, we're going to be talking about training your board of directors, a really key piece of the puzzle, something that's mentioned in this very guidance we're talking about today. And to sign up for that, it's really simple. All you have to do is text the word directors with an S to 44222. That's directors to 44222. The upshot this time is when you're looking at the guidance for risk assessment in the new Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs memo from the Department of Justice, there are really three salient things to think of. One is be able to talk about your methodology and how you specifically address risk. Secondly, be able to support the metrics that you are collecting to detect misconduct. What is your information gathering like? How robust is it? And lastly, Make sure that your risk assessment regime address manifest risks, risks that have already happened. This time we have three questions with Matt Kelly. Matt is the CEO of Radical Compliance, an independent compliance consultant who studies corporate compliance, governance, and risk management issues. He maintains a blog, RadicalCompliance.com, where he shares his thoughts on business issues and speaks on compliance, governance, and risk topics frequently. He was named as a rising star of corporate governance by Milstein Center for Corporate Governance in the inaugural class of 2008 and named to Ethisphere's most influential in business ethics in 2011 and 2013. Matt previously was editor of Compliance Week, a newsletter on corporate compliance from 2006 to 2015. He lives in Boston, Massachusetts and can be reached at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Welcome, Matt. Hello. Happy to be here, Eric. So, Matt, can you tell us how you got into the compliance and ethics field? What was your career journey? Sure. It was probably a little bit unusual compared to most people, but uh, I was a newspaper reporter by training, and I wound up as a freelance business writer living around Boston in the early 2000s as Compliance Week was getting started. And uh, like all good freelancers, when the founders called me up through a mutual acquaintance. They were looking for a writer. I said, can your checks clear the bank? And they said, yes. And I said, sure, I'm happy to write about compliance. I will confess that back then, that would have been late 2003. I didn't really know much about compliance itself, but the uh, nice thing was I don't really think many people did back then. Certainly not compliance as we know it today with Sarbanes-Oxley Act was still very new. There weren't really a whole lot of places to go and get information about how you could build a SOX compliance program. I was very fortunate that I got to be able to participate in that from the really the ground level growing up with this whole industry. 
but I wound up writing for Compliance Week and then working there for a total of about 12 years, from 2003 to 2015. And now I'm doing my own blog and doing my own research about compliance at RadicalCompliance.com. But wherever I'm doing it, I will just say, I think this field is endlessly fascinating. I don't know what that says about me as a cool person when I'm at a party <laughs> and people ask what I do. But this mix of organizational behavior, legal theory, technology, accounting rules, the way it all blends in together and sometimes supports each other, sometimes contradicts each other, always a lot of tension there. And the people who have to unravel that, I just think that this field is, like I said, endlessly fascinating. I'd talk about it all day long if I could. But <laughs> that really is how I got into it. Never thought when I started back, you know, what, 15 years ago or so that I would still be doing it, but now I'm happy to do it as long as I can. And as a follow-up to that, I, you've been watching this progression over 15 years, as you say, with a journalist's eye to the trends and, and things that are happening. One thing that's, I think, front of mind for a lot of people in the last few weeks is what the future in general terms might hold depending on the direction that the federal government here in the United States takes with regards to regulation and, you know, more broadly compliance. I'm curious, since you've watched it grow, do you think there's a momentum and an inertia that's uh, basically unstoppable regardless of who uh, is manning the controls at the Department of Justice and SEC and other, other regulators, or, or, or is there a potential for us to backslide? It's, Closer to the former, although I wouldn't necessarily say momentum or inertia so much as I would say that the current of the river is not going to change just because there is a different person paddling down it, if that if I can get away yeah. with that metaphor. I mean, yeah. what I mean is certainly it is true that a lot of what has been built as a compliance apparatus and what is now good regulatory policy, I don't think that's going to go away. I don't think it's going to weigh number one, because a lot of it does make good sense. Number two, I don't think that the current leaders in Washington, while they may talk about a grand vision for a deregulatory or anti-regulatory wave, I don't know that they're actually going to be able to put a plan together. It's very easy to talk about what you don't like and what you want to tear down. It's a wholly other thing to talk about what you want to build back up in its place. And we see that right now that a lot of what the Trump administration had promised in the campaign, we're not seeing very many details in the administration that's now actually in office. I think some of that will carry through. When you look at what some of the Justice Department specifically is saying about something like FCPA compliance, actually, a lot of it sounds very similar to what we heard in the Obama administration and certainly what we heard in the Bush administration in the 2000s. And the people who are staffing the Justice Department at that mid-level, these are people who, even if you do not agree with Republican policies, and they are Republicans, but these are people who, regardless of your political leanings as a compliance officer, you can deal with them. Um, they get it. Uh, they see that there is a need for an effective compliance program. It might be more that the Trump administration will give you a bigger carrot as opposed to a bigger stick, like we saw in the Obama years. But, you know, I can think of that as, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it doesn't mean that companies no longer need to worry about regulatory compliance. That's, I don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah. I would also say 
getting back to the, the river metaphor, I think one thing that's happening is that there is a certain merging of regulatory compliance and enterprise risk that even if the regulation goes away in the United States, the underlying business risk is still going to be there mm-hmm. and the company is going to need to respond to it. Even if we got rid of the FCPA here in the United States, which is not going to happen, but let's say we did, and you then rush to what go out and commit bribery because it's still illegal in many parts of the world and it's still very visible and a very potent threat against the company's reputation. So to a certain extent, what was a regulatory risk before may still be an enterprise risk now, but the muscle memory of how a company is going to control it, that's going to be the same. And so that's one thing I think about a lot these days. No, I think that's I think that's a very wise way of looking at it. And the other thing that that concerns me as a former criminal defense attorney, the you know glass half empty sort of guy, is that the the biggest potential danger here is executives and managers, particularly managers that might be um, you know responsible for operations in difficult parts of the world, will get mm-hmm. the message that things are lax when in reality that they're, they're, they really haven't changed that much. So the danger zone potentially for your employees and the people that you're responsible for inside your organization to make sure that they're not getting themselves and the company in trouble is expanded because they're going to get the messaging even if the fundamentals really haven't changed that much. And that's probably the biggest danger. I think that's an excellent point. And uh, I also think that if that mindset gets out there and it strikes your company, you have to realize in this much more data-centric world, we talk about transparency. Well, what that really means is companies will be able to get into trouble more quickly and in more <laughs> ways at the same time. Um, you know, yeah. You're going to see allegiances of stakeholders, both inside and outside your company, that maybe senior executives don't like these alliances, but they might be able to, you know, employees unhappy with the company policy might ally with shareholders who don't like it either. And that puts the CEO in a really difficult spot. And there's going to be more dwelling on culture, risk management, higher standards of conduct, no matter what, because that reflects on reputation risk is regardless of what the specifics might be, you know, the, what we're getting at here is the need for good ethics and compliance is not going to go away at all. No, no. Uh, I think there. I think there's job security, and there's going to be. If I'm right, there's going to be a lot of job security for criminal defense lawyers too. Um, yes. <laughs> so another thing that I like to ask our guests here on this segment is, if you could go back in time, Matt, and have a conversation with your former uh, younger self before you came into the compliance and ethics space, what's one piece of advice you would have provided yourself? Other than telling me to go out and buy a copy of the COSO framework immediately, which I would have done. Uh, It was years before I actually got around to really studying and absorbing it. I think I would have told my younger self to pay a lot of heed to the importance of culture and the control environment at a company. I would almost say that the two are synonymous. I certainly think that they overlap a lot. And think about what are the practical demonstrable, I guess, manifestations of that at an organization. I'm all for good control activities. I am all for a good risk assessment, but so much of 
what happens at a company, it's not as if people don't know these things are wrong. And it's not as if the CEO isn't off giving a lofty speech talking about how good, good culture is so important. And yet there are all these incidents of bad behavior at a company at the same time. Well, what's the breakdown? The breakdown is something wrong in the culture, something wrong in the control environment. There's any number of ways that you could figure out what that is or what the exact problems might be from one company to the next. But really, that's where the meat of the, of the action is. As much as we all might talk about looking at evidence for 404 audits of effective internal control and it's going to be about culture and it's going to be about the control environment. If you don't have those working well, I don't care how good the rest is. You're going to have problems. And I, yeah. it took me a long time to really appreciate that reality, I think. Yeah, the, the, the one question that I still struggle with, and you touched on it there, is on the culture piece of it, is I have seen organizations that have started with a, a pretty decent culture but no controls, and they've been able mm-hmm. to recover from an issue or a failure it's much harder to think of examples of companies that had controls, had systems in place, but had a ruinous culture and were able to recover from the culture piece. I, I hesitate to say that you can't do it, that you can't recover from the, the poisonous culture, but it's, it's, I, I, I struggle with examples of companies that have been able to overcome it. I do too, and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is there somewhat of a natural size beyond which an organization really starts to not be able to manage its culture very well. You know, when you look at the large banks, they're generally the ones with all sorts of problems, but they are Mm -hmm. enormous. And I'm not sure if their business model and complexity is the root cause, or is it just the size that is the root cause? Um, It is much easier for a small company to have a good culture and avoid mistakes, even without a lot of policies and controls. Yeah. Uh, and where's the cutoff? I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I, I do wonder if there's like a natural limit beyond which things start to go haywire. No, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good point as well. And, you know, is, is the scale a data point that really speaks to cultural issues and cultural deficiencies, if you will? That's, that's a good yep. point. Last question. We already talked a lot about the compliance environment that we see right now here at the uh, you know end of February, beginning of March 2017, as we embark on a brave new world, uh, mm-hmm. at least in the United States. But if you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball for us uh, for a moment, what are one or two trends that you think those of us in this space are really going to be thinking about, writing about, acting on in the next couple of years? What are things that you? What are one or two things that you think are going to be really important? Well, I think a lot about cybersecurity and how that's shifting. And I don't want to turn this into a podcast into a discussion of IT security issues, but what IT security is faced with, I think compliance officers can appreciate the problem and they're probably going to face it sooner rather than later themselves, that um, you know, they don't have enough skilled staff in cybersecurity. So they're constantly thinking about how can they design software and design IT systems to give them better analytics that one cybersecurity analyst can do, can make 1.25 persons worth of smart decisions with the software amplifying their own analytical abilities up in their brain. Um, You know, and I think that they're also, they're moving away from perimeter security, keeping all people out unless they're authorized in, to managing an identity 
even if the identity is a little automated bot or an internet of things or a person or whatever, but just it has a certain set of behaviors. And as soon as that goes off plan, that raises a flag and the human investigates. But there's not going to be a perimeter because everybody's got their iPads and it's the extended enterprise and the contracted labor in and out and all of this. Perimeter goes away and it's more an open battlefield with lookout posts and people are observing parties on the ground and you know what's behaving normally or not. That sort of problem, those challenges, I think are going to wind up manifesting in corporate compliance within the next decade. I think a lot of that is because compliance and audit are somewhat going to merge into a business process improvement function that will help companies with their bigger integrated risk management efforts. I almost wonder if ethics will get somehow split off to more of a legal function, which is fine because thinking through ethics and coming up with what are the good policies, well, legal is well suited to that. But what's the business process? Where are the controls that are mapped out to our risks and whatnot? That's a very internal audit function. And Uh as we get more highly regulated, I could see internal audit and operational compliance issues almost melding into some sort of risk management type of function. And where's ethics? Where's culture? Where's the control environment piece we talked about? It's somewhere, but I don't know that it's there, but it's joined at the hip with that. Uh Those are the kind of things I wonder about as we look forward in the next 10 years. And I think a big part of it, and this will be my last point, is that the coming changes in the labor force between now and 2025, as we get older, skilled workforce is going to become harder to find. If we do wind up getting rid of a lot of immigrants, which are the lifeblood of new dynamism in this economy, if that all goes away, we're going to have a lot different labor force challenges than we thought of by 2025. And I could see a lot of that driving much of what I just talked about here. No, absolutely. Well, Matt, I can't thank you enough for joining us and uh, answering our three questions. We hope to speak to you soon again. All right. Thank you very much, Eric. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.